Onyx Hunt is our go-to solution for anything mapping related, whether we're at the house or in the field, whether we're using the tracking feature in order to kind of figure out exactly where we're going in and out of the woods, to also implementing the new cell camera feature where you can actually link your different cell cameras that you may have from different brands and be able to get all those photos sent directly through the Onyx app where you can actually see them on your maps and be able to go through all your photos right there in one place. You can use the promo code SOUTHERN at checkout and save 20% on your Onyx Onyx membership. Onyx has been extremely helpful for us the last six years, and I'm sure it'll be helpful for you. So know where you stand with Onyx. Look, y'all know the drill. Good optics are a must, whether you're running a red dot sight on your turkey gun or you're running some binos this turkey season, or if you're shopping for a new rifle scope. Vortex Optics needs to be the first place you look. They got something for everybody, whether you're wanting to get some entry-level glass or if you're wanting top-of-the-line glass and really good stuff, they got that too. They also have an unbeatable VIP warranty. If something happens to your Vortex Optic, you can send it in. They will fix it or replace it. Best warranty in the business, bar none. Head on over to MidwayUSA.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN to get a discount on your order of any Vortex product. Again, that's MidwayUSA.com. Go use that promo code SOUTHERN. It'll get you a discount and it helps out the show. Meadow Creek Mounts is your go-to mounting option for red dots on your turkey shotgun. And one of my favorite features about this mount is you don't have to drill and tap your shotgun in order to mount a red dot onto your shotgun. I personally have used this mount the last two seasons and it's worked extremely well for me. One thing I personally like about it is because it's so low onto the barrel when it mounts to the rib of your shotgun, it allows for a very natural head positioning when shouldering your gun. Also an advantage of using a red dot compared to maybe just a traditional bead on your shotgun is you get a much more clear view of the turkey and you're able to kind of see what else is around there and making sure you're perfectly on that bird. Now if you're interested in giving Meadow Creek Mounts a try you can go over to the website MeadowCreekMounts.com and use the code SOUTHERN at checkout to be able to save 10% on your order. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. We've got a repeat guest for you today, Mr. Drew Atkinson. Drew, how are you doing, man? I'm doing good. How are y'all doing? I'm doing excellent. Uh, we initially had Drew on episode number 430. It's called Match the Right Spot with the Right Wind or Thermal with Drew Atkinson. And on that one, we covered stuff like uh, the kind of combination of terrain features that you seek out to hunt, uh, matching the right spot with the right conditions to hunt that spot, uh, the nomadic nature of some mature bucks and, and factoring that into your strategy. So a lot of good stuff on that one if people want to go check out that episode, episode 430. But we also got Jacob Myers here. Jacob, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Andrew. Doing very well. Very excited to have you on, Drew. Um, like I mentioned to you before we actually got recording or started recording, uh, we've actually had a lot more people ask for you to come back on the podcast. Again, you came on, I think it was December of last year. Um, and yeah. to be honest, it was kind of it was kind of late in y'all's season based off what you typically do. So I'm glad we can kind of get you back on. And and one thing very uh, interesting about you and your YouTube channel, I believe it's – is it Drew Atkinson Outdoors or Atkinson Outdoors? Yeah, that's correct. Drew Atkinson Outdoors. So on your YouTube channel, one of the first videos I ever had watched – was you killing a very nice mature buck up in the mountains, up in, in northern Arkansas, and early season on a feed tree, and I'm like, dude, I don't see – I know there's other guys out there, I'm sure, that hunt in more mountainous conditions uh, and hunt you know, feed trees early season, but I don't hear about it a whole bunch. I'm sure there's guys out there, but I just haven't heard it a whole bunch. So I'm like, dude, 
you know, when we talked last year, last December, I'm like, I really want to do another episode with you on that specific tactic because for a couple of reasons, selfishly, I want to learn kind of how you go about doing it and what you're looking for. Also, I know there's a lot of listeners that can get a lot out of this, especially some of our listeners in, say, North Carolina, parts of like Northern South Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, um, you know, parts of Kentucky, Arkansas, like where you're at, and a bunch of other states, especially us here in Alabama. And there's a ton of takeaways that I'm very, very interested in hopefully kind of getting out of this. But, Drew, to kind of give us a start and kind of, you know, give us a uh, a little bit more of a, a background for this, you know, I guess topic, kind of feed tree hunting in the mountains. When did you actually start doing this? When did you start focusing on feed trees in the mountains? And how has that kind of progressed over the years of you actually doing that, especially when targeting mature whitetails? I've always went out early season and I'm looking in the tops of the trees. I'm looking at every species that I can look at. And I'm looking at black oak, white oak, red oak. I'm looking at what is actually producing and I'm looking at where they're producing. Because where they're producing sometimes makes a big difference. And I don't know if a lot of people really know this or go by this, but if it's really hot in early season, and you've got extreme hot temperatures. I mean, you're just sweating, walking in. It's terrible conditions. I mean, you got ticks, chiggers. I mean, everything's bad. Those deer, a lot of times, will be on those north-facing slopes. And that's kind of how I narrow down a lot of what I look at. I look there first because it's actually cooler on the north-facing slopes. And reversal, like late season, it's the south-facing slopes because they warm up faster. So if you can find a mass crop on the north-facing slope, then that's the first place I look. And then if I find it there, and, I, and sign is significant, buck sign, not just feed sign, but buck sign. And as far as a feed tree, I hear people talk about feed trees. It's, it's more or less kind of a group of trees or a band on the side of the mountain that's producing. <clears throat> Some years you've got, like ample mass crop where there's mass crop widespread it's everywhere and every species is hit that's the toughest time there is to kill one early season it's the best time to kill one pre-rut and rut but early season is the toughest if you've got like a sporadic and spotty mass crop it's better in early season so i look for those north slopes they're cooler they tend to bed more on them and then if you can find that shelf, like I was hunting that video that you referred to, then that's where I usually find them because they like to bed on hillsides a lot. Now, they will bed in thickets. And as far as finding an individual feed tree, I think you can find that more in a thicket. But if you're hunting in the mountainous, I mean, just nothing but woods, I think you're more apt to find it. <clears throat> you're more apt to find a group of feed trees, like I said, on that narrow bench that's leading into that rough hillside. And you don't, you can't. They'll bed different when the leaves are on and when the leaves are off. They'll bed anywhere when the leaves are on because the woods are pretty thick. If you get in a place where the side index is low and there's not a lot of understory, <clears throat> it's not very thick. But most of the other places up here in the mountains, just with leaf on, with vegetation on, it's so thick, they can bed anywhere they want to. They can bed right under the tree if they want to. <clears throat> so that's kind of how I narrow it down to start with. I start looking on the north slopes. You can ride a four-wheeler through the forest out there, and as soon as you turn the hill on a north slope, you can feel the temperature difference And versus a south, southwest-facing slope. And 
<clears throat> like I said, if that if that particular year when that mass drought hits in those areas and those drainages and on those hillsides, and a lot of times that is the place to go because that's where they're going to be. It's just like turn the air conditioner on for them. It's just cooler. And they a lot of people ask, you know, how do you narrow it down? But such a vast, you know, it's just all woods. It's all ridges. It's all, you know, big drains. That's where I start right there. And if it's that. If they're not there, then they will get on the south slopes and the warmer, you know, south, southwest facing slopes. But they're going to go where the food is. But if the food is on the north side, that's usually where I find them on the north, on the north facing slopes. So I'm excited to have this conversation because it relates so perfectly with where we're going to hunt in Georgia tomorrow. And uh, what you're describing is something that I ended up seeing firsthand, that north versus south facing slope. And the north-facing slopes in the place that I scouted were just, like you're talking about, they were pretty freaking open. I mean, you could, I I made the analogy, you could like throw a football under there. Um, But, you know, it was like 72 degrees. And meanwhile, you go out into the more open stuff, you go out into the bottom, it's like 81. You know, that's a pretty big temperature difference, especially when the sun is shining on it. So I guess one of my questions is, like, if you're gauging whether or not you think they're going to be on that north versus that south slope, what is that temperature threshold? Because, you know, for at least where we are in Alabama, it's going to be like 85 degrees until like almost Halloween. So is like, are you talking about stuff that's like 80 and up? They're going to be on that north facing slope or just like generally what temperature ranges are you talking about? Yeah, ambient air temperature probably around 80, 85. When I killed that deer that year, Jake was referring to on that video, it was hot. I mean, bad hot, terrible hot. And I killed him actually on, it was kind of a, it was transitioning into the south, but he came from the north. Both those bucks came from the north. They came from that side. But the acorns weren't really on that north side, but they were bedding around there on that north side. And they came from that side and came around to me. I was right basically on the end of the mountain. That's where I killed that deer. But yeah, I probably... I'd say 80, mid-80s. I mean, a lot of times it's 90 degrees up here. It just depends on the year and what kind of drought conditions you have. And as far as the water goes, too, a lot of times there'll be some little, like, pour-offs and some of these big drains, and they'll hold, they'll pull water up. Or like an underground spring. I've got one place that I hunt. It's on the side of a mountain. It's on the lower third of the slope. Black oak, white oak mix all the way around through there, and it, it's like there is this spring that comes up out of the ground and there's water there year round it is a dynamite spot and i don't go back and hunt it it's kind of a pain to get in there but i've wanted to go back and hunt it i probably will one day i showed it to my stepson he's like man how come you're not hunting this i'm like well it's rough driving in here and it's rough it's not too bad walking it's just rough driving in there but there's a spring on the side of that mountain and when the mass crop hits in there, it's on. You can sit there and it's buck after buck after buck coming around a, a narrow bench. And they walk the rough stuff coming around through there. There's a real skinny bench right at the bottom of a steep hillside below a bluff where that little old spring is that comes out right there. But yeah, you got to look for the water too. I mean, if it's in a drought condition like that, you have to, they have to have water close. And sign is key too. I mean, it's extremely significant as far as hunting 
early season because they don't make sign everywhere like they do in the pre-rut. So if you find good, fresh sign in early season, it's extremely significant. You're going to want to stand close to there. Yeah, there's so much but here. I hear- I'll, I'll say, Drew, there's Go so ahead. much here that uh, I, I – there, there's so much you've already mentioned that we're going to absolutely dive into, you know, talking from more of a mountain hunting perspective. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had uh, Rick Cope on the podcast, a guy from South Carolina, very successful feature hunter, but he's much more flat slash like a little gentle rolling hill kind of terrain. Um, but guys mm-hmm. like you that are doing it in more mountainous areas have always fascinated me. Again, uh, you're one of the first guys I've talked to that's specifically done this and had success doing this, especially when targeting mature bucks. Um, but there's a bunch of different factors here that I really kind of want to break down specifically, you know, with this early season time period, because Arkansas typically opens up kind of later September time period for bow season, late September, uh, you know, probably 24th and on. Um, like yeah. when we're in Georgia, they open on typically like the 8th, like it's like the second Saturday of September typically is when they open. Uh, and we're going to be going kind of the following week. So we're going to get there kind of on the 17th or be hunting like that kind of week period, you know, pretty much from the 13th through the 17th, 18th is when we're going to be there. And one thing that I'm interested in, which we're going to kind of dive into with sign, and I'll, I'll kind of get to this a little bit later, but, you know, in your situation, all these deer by that time are completely out of velvet, if I had to guess, are hard horned. Versus, like, when we're going, there's probably going to be some deer out of velvet. Hopefully, a lot of them are out of velvet because I'm hoping to find those early whip rubs. Um, but they might not all be out of velvet. And that's something that I want to kind of talk to you about as well in this episode. But before that, with these north-facing slopes, in the situation when you're having this ambient air temperature, 80-plus degrees, it's hot, it's humid. You know, we're all in the southeast here. It's miserable uh, during that time of the bow season. With north-facing slopes being as cool as they are, you know, just getting the, the lack of sunlight. In addition to that, typically, and you kind of mentioned this as well, a lot of times these north-facing slopes are, are more open. It gets less sunlight. You're not going to have as much thick cover. And typically, in my experience, kind of those mountains that you hunt, a lot of thick cover I've found is if they've come through and slight cuts in timber or if you just have higher stem count saplings growing on the side of a mountainside, uh, which when the leaves are on, it's thick, it's nasty, but it's not like briar thick. It's just high stem count thickness. We're like in the area that Andrew's gone to and some of the areas we've looked at, it looks extremely open on those north-facing uh, slopes where you can see, you know, 150-plus yards through some of that kind of stuff. In stuff like that, when you have extremely open woods, but it's the cooler side and there's mass crops there, would you expect those bucks to kind of bed closer towards that top edge where maybe some of the more thicker cover could potentially, I can't talk, could <laughs> potentially be at where you're getting sunlight closer towards the top of the ridge system but still cool and also bedding in like a steeper area as well where they're bedding truly with much more of a visual, you know, bedding location instead of, you know, tucking up in a bunch of thick stuff. Yeah, they could. They're always going to bed where they can see what they can't smell and smell what they can't see. So in an open situation like that, that's, yeah, they could, they could be on the contour bedded and they could be on the tip of a point (coughs) and something like that. But, uh, most of the time up here, they bed, a lot of times they bed where the wind kind of kicks up too, where you can get a little bit of breeze, like when it's real balmy, like a high spot, like on the end of a point or like a little knob or something like that. I've seen a lot of beds and places like that when it's balmy, I think, because it just catches more of a breeze. They're not as on edge in the early season as they are later. And I think they'll bed kind of in a little bit different spots. I think it's, 
I don't know. It's more maybe temperature related and just, like I said, they're going to bed where they can see what they can't smell, smell what they can't see. But uh, I think that, uh, I think when they start getting pressured is when they get into thicker stuff. But up here, even when the foliage is on, pretty much everything's thick. Even on the north slopes, there's not many open places like that up here. There's a few areas where it's open, but a lot of times even on the south slopes, it's more open just because the, the side index is lower and the the bigger trees are taking most of the nutrients. And there's not a lot of undergrowth. So they're kind of more open and the north slopes, they're pretty, they're pretty thick, especially in the drainages. I mean, you got a lot of understory growing in there, sugar maple and maple and a few oak trees, volunteers coming up, stuff like that. It just creates a whole, it's kind of like the beach I was talking about before in the, late season and year round they hold their leaves year round so it creates you know a bed and cover where you can't see them they can get in there and bed well it's kind of like that in early season here it's just there's so much mid-story and understory that they can bed pretty much wherever they want to wherever they feel most comfortable and where you're going in georgia i don't know it may be more open there but here most places even on the north slopes it's still pretty thick as far as foliage goes and green leaves and then when the green leaves start falling off later on past the autumn end of the fall they kind of change up you know they they start moving towards the rougher places and bedding moving towards the more secure places and bedding whereas early season i don't know and their guards down too it's it's a good time to kill a big buck but it's just it's kind of short-lived it depends on Sometimes, you know, if we get a drought, the leaves fall off earlier, and sometimes they don't. But it definitely changes when the leaves fall off. When you get leaf off, the deer seem to change quite a bit here as far as where they're bedding. Talking about that early season time frame, you were just mentioning how important sign is. And if you find really hot sign in this early season time frame, you found something really, really significant. Can you talk about what sign kind of trips your trigger the most, maybe specifically when you're targeting a mature buck and you're wanting to kill a mature buck early season? So they get, they're in bachelor groups, of course, late summer, and then they start splitting off slowly. They'll start decreasing the numbers. They'll get that, they maybe seven or eight bucks in a wood. And then they'll get down to two or three, and then they'll be down to like, Two. A lot of the big bucks I've killed, they'll keep a small buck with them. They run with a small buck. The big mature bucks, they'll have a little small buck with them. I don't know. I've killed almost every one of them I've killed in the early season has had some kind of a smaller buck with them. But uh, the scrapes, a lot of times they won't. Sometimes they'll make the scrapes and sometimes they won't. Sometimes they'll just hit the licking branches. You'll see where they've twisted the little branches and they'll like an old place where they've been working year after year after year. And a lot of people talk about the core areas. That's kind of where they come into play. If they've got a core spot where they feel comfortable, it's a 15, 20, 30, 40 acre spot that they're using. They'll make scrapes kind of on the outside edge of that and in the interior and they'll make a lot of sign around it. And you just got to get in there and find the freshest sign you can find and hang on it and hunt it but a lot of people don't do this but i don't know if i should talk about it or not but i use i used to use scent i still do some in early season the best times i've the best luck i've had hunting scrapes actually killing deer on a scrape in a scrape is extremely early and extremely late 
whenever the pre-rut and rut time comes up, the pre-rut's pretty good, but rut, it's just like they're, they're a non-factor. It's a non-starter trying to hunt a scrape. But really early and really late is awesome for scrapes here in the mountains. And I've used scent. I've even, I've, a lot of times used buck scent in them. If it's a territorial thing, I'll put buck scent. A lot of times I'll see how they react to it. I hang trail cameras on it. And I've had no telling how many bucks come hit those scrapes with using buck scent. And then I've even used doe esters. I've heard people talk about, oh, you don't want to use it. It'll spook does and this and that. Well, I've put it in there early. I mean, early, I'm talking early September put in there. I've had bucks on camera in velvet making scrapes before. And if it's a mature buck and it's his area and you go in there and do that, he's liable to show up daytime hours if you don't watch out. I mean, he's liable to be on you. I've killed a couple like that. Well, probably more than a couple early season. That's kind of a that's kind of a best kept secret right there. <clears throat> Not a lot of people do it. Not a lot of people use scent early. But that's the best time I've found to use it is early and late. During the rut, it's pretty much, I mean, you can use it, but it's not as effective. And I don't, I'm not as effective hunting scrapes. I have killed them on scrapes in the rut, but I'm way more effective killing them on them early and late in the year. All right. All right. Listen. There, okay. We're just taking, we're taking a hard left turn right here with sense. <laughs> so, um I am very interested. So let, let, me, let me tell you something, uh, Jerry. I had this thought after talking to a bunch of like extremely successful hunters talking about, you know, second bucks come out of velvet, they're ready to breed. Like it's, it's truly the does are the ones that are, of course, are, are timing the rut. You know, bucks could breed a doe at any point if she came to heat. And I had this wild thought. I might have talked about it on the podcast. I don't know if I did or not. That if you were to – if you were to go out and put doe estrus out, and this is just a wild thought I had, and you just kind of talked about this. The second those bucks came out of velvet, okay, and they're hard horned, and they're already laying down some sign. If you put doe estrus out, potentially what could happen? As in, like, would that ramp up the curiosity of some of those bucks and kind of get them more fired up, truly? Would it spook the deer? Because um, I've heard from other guys, um, you know, you put doe estrus out, you know, two months before the rut that you're going to spook all the bucks in the area. They're like, oh, that's not natural, and just and just get out of town. And I've heard that from a bunch of people. But I've had this same theory and the same thought you just mentioned, that if you implement it early, early enough, we're like, there's no other does coming to heat, that there could be – it's almost like a curiosity scent. Like a buck's like, what is going on here? And that potentially makes that's him more time. curious in the area. That's the time to kill him with it. I mean, if you're doing it during the rut, I mean, there's esters all over the woods. If you're doing it early, it's something new. It's something that, I mean, it piques the curiosity. This wide joker right here behind me, that's how I killed him. Actually, I, I killed him later in November, but I had him working scrapes early, 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 putting esters out in them. From velvet all the way till out of velvet, I had him working scrapes. In August, all the way through the middle of September, I had that joker working scrapes. Working a scrape. <clears throat> but I screwed it up. I went in there and shot a bear and ended the whole thing. Ended up killing him completely on the opposite side of the mountain. 
I tried to find that deer after that. I don't know why it messed him up so bad, but I tried to find him in like muzzleload season and I jumped him in a pine thicket and <clears throat> I spooked him pretty bad. I could hear his horns crashing through the timber for a long ways out through there. I'm like, oh man, this is bad. But it was like early November. I had him show up on a scrape on the opposite side of the mountain with another 10 point. And he was working that scrape too. Both of them were working that same scrape. So I just moved over there and ended up killing him over there. But I was going to kill him early season on that scrape with doe estrus is how I was going to kill that deer until I shot that bear. But the bear kept tearing my trail camera down. I go in there and I was actually on the ground. I went in there to look, check my trail camera and I was looking for it. It was gone. And I looked and it was laying on the ground and I was picking it up, putting the batteries and everything back in it. And I heard that bear coming and he walks up on the hill and I smacked him. And of course he bled all over the hillside and I stuck a strap around him and drug him around the hill and it was a long drag out there and I sweated and everything else. I don't know. It just, it just messed that deer up when I killed that bear. I had everything going for me until I shot that bear. But I killed another one. Same scenario. Early season, it was a Pope and Young 10 point. And that thing was making scrapes early, early. That's back when, before season opened in September. It opened October 1st. But I killed him opening day. It was a Pope and Young 10 point. And uh, he had like 11 scrapes under one cedar tree. And that thing came in and smelled me. I think I was using thermosel. Mosquitoes were terrible. And I don't know if he smelled that or what, but he spooked. And there was another buck with him. And they came back about an hour before dark and I ended up killing him. And it was early season. And it was definitely on scrapes. I mean, I killed that thing. He was in that area. He was probably using a 10, 15 acre spot that deer was. That particular 10 point. What was funny, though, was I had that camera set up on that scrape. I knew that deer was coming through there more than what he was, but I only had like three pictures of him. <coughs> but I knew he was coming through there. He just was probably hitting that scrape every once in a while, and then every other time he'd come through there, he'd probably just come downwind of it and do his thing. Because there was multiple scrapes in there. there was, like I said, there was 11 or that one cedar tree. That's not even where I had the camera. But... I went in there hunting thinking, well, there's all kinds of sign in here. I know I'm in the right spot, but I've not got a ton of pictures of him, but I know he's in here. And I finally, I mean, opening the day, he showed up. There was a nine point with him, about a three-year-old nine point. I passed him up. He walked right under me about 30 minutes before I shot him. <clears throat> but that was where sign was critical. I mean, it was, there was a lot of mast in there, a lot of, a lot of different mass. There was beets. There was white oak, black oak, red oak. He was in there. I just knew I had to get in there and spend the time and be stealthy getting out, not getting in and out and not spooking. Pretty long walk in there to where I killed him. But <clears throat> Ended up having to make a bad shot on him, though. He was facing me, and it was getting right at last light, and I shot him like looking right at me down through the top of his back. That's a whole other story. I tracked him, went flying down to the bottom of a, the next canyon over, and uh, he was way up in there. And I found him at like one thirty in the morning, and it was that—that that was a whole. There's a big story behind that. But 
that's another thing too. I've, I learned a lot about these deer. If you make a bad shot on one or somebody else does and you're tracking one, they'll tell you a lot about what they do when you're tracking a deer, a wounded deer like that. Man, they'll, that tells you a lot. They'll take you through some places that you think, man, this is where he's been living all this time. It's pretty cool. Some of them you find, some of them you don't. But <clears throat> lucky enough, I found him. But it was a good deer. I killed him early season. It was like I said, it was before they started opening up season in September. It was early October that year when I killed him. I didn't get no video. I wasn't videoing at that point in time. Well, let me let me bring this back up with the whole scent thing and like implementing you know different buck scents and like doe esters and stuff in the early part of the season, you know, you're talking like September time period, like not even like late October, but like in September going into October. <clears throat> Do you think the, uh, the doe estrus specifically is more almost like a curiosity scent? Like, what do you see them? Like, are you running trail cameras on video mode or photo mode? If you're running on video mode, like what are you actually seeing them? Like the body language of those deer when they come investigate that, or even if you're running on photo mode, like what, what, what are you seeing differently when you use say that doe estrus? verse at say a different point of the season and implementing it yeah i don't do video mode i just do photos but they'll they'll, they'll spend more time you'll get more pictures of them if you got it on a 30 second interval you'll have 10 15 pictures of that deer and that's great he'll stop and he'll he'll even rub his tarsal glands together a lot of times and pee and that's great and really work it <clears throat> i don't like to do it too early though i like to wait until it's closer to time when I'm ready to go in and kill. I don't like to, I like to do it fresh for lack of a better term. Go in there and do it, you know, five, six days before or three or four days before. But uh, I've even done that in late season too. I've done it in late season and early season. Like I said, that's the best time. That's the best luck I've had as far as actually killing a deer on a scrape. I mean, I'm not saying you can't kill them in the rut on a scrape. That'd be between does or whatever. But as far as being consistent with it and actually having better luck actually hunting a scrape, it's really early and really late because they know the does are right there on the brink. They're not in, but they're fixing to be in, you know. And there's not, like I said, there's not estrus floating all through the woods. The rut, they just go crazy. I mean... There's estrus all in the woods. Those things are cruising, looking for the next one. They'll stay with one, go to another one. That's just when I've had better luck with it. And I've, I have you sent over and over and over and over again. I haven't let that. I don't know that many people do that. I haven't heard many people talking about doing that. I've done it, you know, since I've been bow hunting. <clears throat> and I've had luck with it. I've killed some big deer doing that. And a lot of times it's not necessarily right at the early season. It's a little bit later on the October, that first cold front, or like, you know, later October, that Halloween time. It's just always a little bit before when I have the best luck on the scrapes. But like I said, not saying you can't kill them. I have killed them on scrapes when the full-blown rut kicks off. But I just had more consistent and better luck early and late. I've been out in January sometimes, and when I mean they've bred a ton of does and everything's slowing down, and then all of a sudden 
we used to go out and hog hunt all the time, go out and hunt hogs. I would notice these scrape lines, I mean, just fresh, blowed open in January. I was like, man, look at this. And that's what it is. They're just waiting for those does that didn't get bred. They're coming back in heat in late season. They're out making scrapes and doing the same thing they're doing early season before the first part of the rut. <clears throat> and I've killed some in late season like that with a bow in January. But that's just the way, that's just my experience with it here in the mountains. That's, that's when I've had my best success. Yeah. Let me ask you this, Drew, as well. Do you ever implement mock scrapes at all or are, are all these scrapes that you're doing this on with a sense, or are they all pre-existing scrapes, or do you ever implement with a mock scrape? I'm trying to think what video it was. You know that buck I killed that had the real long eye guards mm-hmm. and pretty heavy horn about a couple of years ago? There never was a scrape there, not one time. I never, <clears throat> I always thought there should have been a scrape there. There never was a scrape there. I made a scrape there and killed that deer on that scrape. I killed that deer on the scrape that I made. <clears throat> and multiple bucks were using it. It was just the right place. I mean, it was, there's like a secondary point, kind of a hogback point that intersected a drain above a bluff. And all those deer were coming around there. When I crossed that drain, they got a choice. They can either come towards me or they can go around high. And a lot of them come around high and I miss them, but, I usually try to call them if they come high, but if they come, I'm in the high percentage spot where I'm at. But for whatever reason, they'd always scrape up above that. I'm like, I'm missing the deer, though. I'm missing the ones that are crossing low. So I kind of got in between, and I made a scrape there. And that heavy deer that I killed with the long eye guards, I killed him on that mock scrape. I made that scrape myself. And there never was a scrape there. I went in there that year after I'd made it, and they, they were tearing it up. I mean, just wearing it out. I had multiple bucks using it. I had one that was like over 20 inches wide. That's the one I was actually hunting. I didn't kill him, but I killed the I killed the other buck. I saw him one morning before I killed him when I went in there. But there was a good mass crop in there that year. It was like where I was talking about how it's in a kind of a beltway across the mountainside. There was a, at a certain elevation that year is where the mast was. And... It was really hard to get in and out of there, though, because those deer were bedding close. And I, I would try to go in there in the mornings, and I would spook them. I'd try to get out of there in the evenings, I'd spook them. And uh, I finally was like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bank on the evening hunt because I'm going to spook less deer in the evenings than I am in the mornings. And I, I missed that big deer in there in the morning. If I, would, I probably wouldn't have killed him anyway because I'd spooked a bunch of deer going in. But I had like four different bucks in there, and he was in there at seven thirty. The big wide one was hitting that scrape that I had made at seven thirty in the morning. But I was sitting up there in my truck waiting on. I was like, I want to wait till it gets daylight where I can see what I'm doing, and ease in slow, and then get in. But it wouldn't have mattered. I still wouldn't have killed him because I'd have spooked. I mean, there was deer in there like every on every fifteen minute interval to thirty minutes. There was a deer hitting that scrape from 5 o'clock in the morning until 7.30 when he was there. So I would have spooked another deer, and he probably wouldn't have come through there. But, uh, yeah, I killed that deer. I killed that deer on a mock scrape, that big eight-point. What time of the year was that when you killed him again? I think it was November 7th is when it was. 
November the 7th. I killed that deer. So, kind of getting away from the scrape talk, I, I got a lot of other questions, but I do want to kind of get back to the feed trees, and I know Andrew's got a lot of questions here as well. Specifically in the feed with feed trees and where you're at with, with the hard mass, you're, you've talked about a couple different times, and I've seen this as well while I've hunted like that part of the state of Arkansas, that based off for whatever reason, whether it's late frost or whatever, like you'll have, like you said, it's like a band around the mountain, like a certain elevation point that all the mass is at. It's not below it, and it's not above it. For whatever reason, it's like a band. It might be a 100-foot wide band, or it might be 50 feet wide in elevation yep. gain, or maybe wider than that, um, as in vertically up and down. When when you have that situation where you it's like limited, uh, you know, feed sources. It's a limited food source where it's just a band. It's not like the whole mountain is is necessarily covered in uh, mass crops that year. How do you go about both? I want to know how you go about scouting for that. Like, do you like to go out like this time of the year in September and start glassing, you know, oak trees and trying to find where the mass is at? Do you wait until season comes in? Like, what is your ta- your what is your take on finding what trees should be hot and then how do you correlate what you find into how you're going to go about hunting it based off potentially what your trail cameras are telling you yeah i do scout and i do look in the top of those trees but a lot of times those trees in the woods they don't have lower like epicormic branching on them so you don't it's hard to see the acorns in them they're like right in the top so you don't know for sure if they're dropping until they actually drop, because I mean they may be bloated on three or four limbs up there, and you can't see them because they're right in the top of the tree. <clears throat> I was scouting the other day, and I ran into that same thing when I was looking for this one buck that I thought about going after, and it was like, man, I can't even tell. I mean, they, there could be. I went in a spot last year where I didn't think there was an acre in one, and they started dropping like crazy whenever I went back in there later, because I just could not see them. They were right in the tip top of the tree. But, uh, <clears throat> and like field trees, you can see those, they'll be all the way down to the ground. One that's got, you know, a, a tree that's got a lot of open ground around it, they'll be all the way down to the ground. But the ones in the woods, it seems like they're right in the very tip top of them. And you can look for sagging limbs and stuff like that. And sometimes that'll that'll give you a tip but i guess the main thing i do when it's like that is i go look where the squirrels are and see if the, and the squirrels a lot of times will cut them and they'll cut the they'll cut the caps off of them and there'll be some on the ground you know then that'll give you an indication that yeah there's there's a mass crop in here there's a few acorns on these trees <clears throat> but yeah it's tough because a lot of these trees i mean they're 70 feet tall you cannot you just cannot see up there <clears throat> to actually tell what's on them yeah Drew, like that's said, pretty have... much exactly what was happening to me when i was in georgia on friday is I, I was getting on these little shelves on the side of the mountain and there'd be like 10 or 15 white oaks right there and i would be looking glassing at the very tops and i just i couldn't see anything up in there i'm like man like no way that all these trees didn't make because i've been talking to some people that live around there and they're like no our, our white oaks are doing good this year and then i came i came upon a squirrel when I was up there, that was way up in one of those trees, and he's pulling them off the limbs, and there's acorns dropping out of one of those white oaks where the squirrels messing around. I'm like, okay, they're here. I just can't see them. And that, that's a really yep. good point that they could be way, way up in the tops of those trees sometimes. I wouldn't have considered that. 
and they will like i said where it's heavily forested that's the way it's going to be pretty much every time you're not going to have those low hanging limbs like where you do in like a open area in a field or a wildlife opening or food plot you're going to be able to actually walk up and you can pick them off with your hand in a lot of those trees mm-hmm. and they will hit those too at nighttime when they hit those but that brings up a whole nother point though some of those trees can be really effective but it's only at certain times the does will be feeding on them and the bucks will come out in low light conditions like if you get a fog or a rain up here on the mountain a lot of times that's when you can actually target a feed tree that's in the open like that one that's producing in the open it will actually come right to the thing uh drew but yeah i, I want to get into that uh i want to get into the more open area feed trees but one thing i want to hit on just kind of before we move past it is you talked a little bit about where they like to hang out when it comes to like maybe thicker cover, north, south facing slopes. And you said that in early season, the deer are real, they're, you know, they're real mellow. They're, they haven't been messed with yet. So maybe they're doing some stuff that they wouldn't be doing later on into the season. Maybe they haven't dove into just like the absolute worst cover ever yet. But I am curious about what about the, the, the rockier, steeper nasty slopes so like in early season do you find that they they gravitate towards the the real rocky real steep stuff like maybe during the day for bedding uh or is that something that they kind of get pushed into as the year goes on they still will some but as the pressure comes on they will move more and later like yeah as more pressure comes on the more they're going to move back into those areas but they'll bed right out of the tree sometimes in early season. If there's enough, you know, mid-story and understory there, they'll bed right there close or under the tree. And a lot of times it's not the bucks, it's the does that are using it. I killed one buck one year. I mean, I had so many does in there. I made friends with the does when I was walking in. I'd bleat to them and talk to them and everything else and just, they saw me so much going in there and going out of there that they they didn't even snort anymore. I mean, they were just, like, comfortable with me. And I started getting in that tree and hunting, and the does, they just kind of eased off, and finally I ended up shooting the buck a little bit later. But <clears throat> they were bedding so close to those trees. I mean, just right there on them. But I would walk in there, and I'd just do, like, a little light bleat to them and just ease along like I was a deer. I mean, they didn't pay much attention to me. The bucks, I don't know exactly. I think they were on the rougher. I think they were on around the hillside bedding is where they were because that's just kind of what they do. And the doe groups, of course, they're separate that time of the year. They're separate any time of the year from them. But they were so locked into those that bench. I can't say a tree, but it was just a a bench with trees on it. And these weren't even, this wasn't acorns. This was beach. This was beach trees that they were feeding on. There wasn't any, there wasn't a ton of acorns that year, but <clears throat> I ended up killing the buck later. I mean, it was closer to when the doe started coming in heat. And that's another thing too. Those deer, a lot of times, if it's real still, if it's been just stagnant for a long time and there's no wind, those bucks, they don't get up and move a lot. And a lot of people talk about hunting, you know, right after the front and all that. Well, it doesn't even have to be a front. It can just be a wind. 
just getting a breeze blowing will get those bucks on their feet. Just a breeze blowing in the woods. Any kind of change. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be a huge front. Just any, I used to say that any kind of weather change at all. I love hunting when it's like terrible conditions for days and days and days and days upon end. Then all of a sudden you might get a 7 to 10 mile an hour wind. That's the best time to go in there and hunt. Of course, the moon plays into it too, but <clears throat> it doesn't even have to have the moon lining up with it as long as you get some kind of a change, some kind of a break in that weather. It seems like they get up on their feet and start moving. Just some kind of a break, whether it be wind or... And up here in the mountains, I've said it for years, it's just a... If, even, if it's, even if it's a low-pressure system and it comes in and it creates moisture and fog man those these mountain deer they these mountain bucks they start moving when you get moisture and fog they start moving i had a video i posted a couple of years ago maybe in year before last last year i don't remember when it was but it was a few years ago when the hunt actually happened but i shot at i had three monster bucks on me in one day the third day of bow season monster i'm talking one's a 14 point one's a 12 point one was an eight point the eight point was the smallest one it's probably between 125 and 130 on a wma and it was it was a weather change it was it was a low pressure system with like a slow rain and fog and i hunted all day long in that stand i never got out of it i sat there all day and the first shot i took was at 11 30 the next one was just like right then because those two bucks were on me at one time. And then the, the third shot I took that I connected with was at uh, 2 o'clock in the day. And uh, third day of bow season. These were all big bucks. I mean, I, I didn't kill one. I had bad luck, but they were thumper bucks. Let me tell you, they were big bucks. Nobody else was hunting. I was probably the only man in the in the woods that day. Drew, I'll, I want to ask about uh, one more thing with the bedding, especially when you talk about maybe on some of those hotter trees, you'll have some does bedded right underneath them or right in that general area. Uh, I wanted to ask how you, how you deal with that when you're actually going in there to hunt. Um, and, and maybe you're like, let's just say, for instance, maybe you found a feed tree that it's got hot sun underneath it. There's, there's whip rubs and stuff around in the area but you get there and you blow out three does. Like, what are you doing? It, is that a big deal to you, or are you, are you just shooting up the tree anyways because that tree's so hot it's going to draw those deer in? Yeah, I'm going up anyways. I mean, you can't you can't help it if they're out there. There's nothing you can do. I mean, if they're there bedding right there, there's nothing you can do. Like I said, the only thing I've done to them, I bleat to them like I'm another deer. I mean, they just kind of look at me. And the first couple times I went in that one year when I killed that buck, they spooked, but after that, I mean, they're still in there. I even used a can call a couple times. I can to them. I just walk real slow and just try to ease past them and get in there and get in that tree. And, I mean, it worked out for me. I even went in there one day. I could have shot like three or four of them at 25 yards. They were sitting there looking at me. But, like I said, the foliage is thick. Deer act a little bit different early season than they do. If it had been later season, they wouldn't have done that. But it was early season, so <clears throat> they weren't 
acting like they do in, you know, November. But, I mean, I walked right up on them. I've, I've even climbed the tree before, and then still sitting there looking at me and walk off. But that's after several times of going in and out. <clears throat> Most of them, though, are pretty spooky. I mean, especially the first couple times going in. If you're actually hunting, that's the problem with hunting. If you've got a spotty mass crop or if you're hunting an individual feed tree or if you're hunting a real tight spot where you know they're going to be, that's you just got to deal with it. I mean, it's you're going to spook deer. You, there's no way around it. Either if you hunt in the morning or if you hunt in the evening. I've tried waiting, you know, a little bit longer and going in. I missed that big buck that one morning. I missed being in the stand when he come through. And then the evenings, I've tried to ease down real slow and not see anything, but they're coming in as I'm coming out, and then I've got deer snorting all over me. I mean, but it doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't seem to, I guess sometimes it has more of an effect than others, but I've still killed deer in those scenarios. I just try to be as stealthy as I can. <clears throat> and the evening seems like is that's kind of what I try to hone in on, because the mornings, I mean, if they're already in there and they're bedded, you know, if there's a lunar table where they're in there and feeding, a lot of times though they, they decide to bed, they'll bed right there on the tree. And you try to go in there in the morning and there they are. They're within 30, 40 yards of, I say that tree, that group of trees or that band that you're hunting in there, that one area that's got the mast. They're going to spook every time. That's, I don't know what the answer is for that. I mean, it's just... I don't know if there's a good answer for it, other than just be as sneaky and stealthy as you can and try to figure out when they're there and try to sneak in them when they're not there if you know when they're not there. That's a, that's a, that's a hard deal right there. When you think turkey calls, think of Houndstooth. Houndstooth Game Calls is a company based right here in Alabama, actually based out of Tuscaloosa, and they have been making some of our favorite turkey calls since 2012. Y'all head on over to their website, see what they got. They got a little something for everybody. They have a huge selection of different mouth calls, different cuts, different read configurations. I like to go on there and get five or six different mouth calls and just run them, see which ones I like the most. You know, some days I might like the KB Hen, some days I might like the Ghost Cut. Some situations I might like the Country Girl Call, you know, that I can cut on really hard where on other situations I might like the all pro that I can get a little bit softer on. Bottom line, there's something for everybody and something for every situation and hey, you can get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls by using the promo code SOP 24. That's SOP 24. Use that promo code. It'll get you a discount and it helps out the podcast. Save space and cut weight with the Sawyer Mini Water Filtration System. This water filter fits in the palm of your hand and has a total field weight of just two ounces. I use this thing all the time. Basically, the way that it works is you get a drinking pouch. So it's literally just a little plastic pouch with a cap on it, like a water bottle cap that you fill up with water, and then you attach the filter to the front of that and squeeze the water through it into, you know, whatever you're holding your water in. Super fast, super easy, super serious filter, filtering out all bacteria, protozoa, and microplastics, so you don't have to worry about salmonella, E. coli, or stuff like Giardia. This saves me a ton of weight, whether I'm doing a long scouting trip or, you know, hunting all day. I get to carry less water with me, taking up less room in my pack, and then when I come to a nice stream, filter out some water, and I'm good to go. Head on over to Sawyer.com to check it out or hit the link in the description of this podcast. 
You know, we've had a, a legendary outdoor store here in Birmingham called Mark's Outdoors for the last 40 years. Family owned and operated, absolutely a staple in the hunting community here. And we're excited to announce that they have gone national with their e-commerce. So no matter where you're at, you can go get access to all the awesome gear and awesome deals at MarksOutdoors.com. We got a link in the description for them. They've actually got some of our favorite ammo. They have an excellent ammo selection, excellent knife selection, excellent firearm selection. Y'all can go check them out. You won't be disappointed. Everything you need from apparel, archery, firearms, ammo, reloading, gun cleaning, and fishing. They have an unbelievable fishing department. And hey, if you are local or if you're passing through Birmingham, drop on into Mark's Outdoors. Head on over to the bow counter to Mark and Robbie and tell them that we sent you. Once again, that's MarksOutdoors.com, or you can go hit the link in the description of this podcast to check them out. True Lock Chokes has been around since 1981 and still a family-owned operation from the great state of Georgia. True Lock makes every choke configuration you can imagine for any kind of wing shooting, hunting application, but also going to the skeet and trap range. Going into this turkey season, me and Andrew are going to be shooting the new Headhunter series chokes from True Lock and also going to be trying out our buddy Dave Owens' Pinoti Chokes from the Pinoti Project. This is an awesome family-owned operation, guys, that is building all their chokes right here in America, right out of Georgia. If you're looking for a new choke this spring, give True Lock a try, and you can use the promo code SOUTHERN at checkout and save 10% on all your orders. So y'all go support this awesome local Southern company and give True Lock a try. And we appreciate True Lock's support of the Southern Outdoors and Podcasts. So, Drew, you've said something a couple times on this podcast, and I'm curious if Andrew's picked up on this. I almost guarantee he hasn't, but maybe he has. Drew, you've mentioned a few times on this podcast, you get up in a setup in a tree, you know, on like that band of mass crops where, again, you know, the elevation line where all these mass crops or all these mass trees or all these oaks are at, they're dropping. And you've mentioned a few times that these bucks have come around the hillside to you, okay? Yep. When you're saying they're coming around the hillside, is this typically where you're hunting close to a point on the end of a ridge? Or is this just like one of those longer ridge systems where there's like a slight bend in that ridge system somewhere down it? And they're just coming down on a similar elevation line close to where you're at, coming to those feed trees in that group that you're hunting on? Yeah, a little bit of both. Sometimes I hunt where like a backbone ridge intersects, and then other times I'll hunt just right on the break line. Right on the contour break. A lot of those big bucks, they like to be on the edge. It's the same thing as fish. They like to use the edge. They like to use ledges. They like to use the bucks. like to do the same thing. They like to be right on the edge or they can drop off if something spooks them. Or, I mean, right on the edge is where they travel. Sometimes they'll be just off the edge. But that, that plays into your advantage because if you got a wind blowing that's blowing parallel with that edge, they can't hardly smell you. I mean, it's going way over their head, especially if they're coming low on that hill. They cannot smell you. I mean, it's just very seldom will they smell you. Now, if it's blowing, laying down on the bench, actually on the bench, then that's a little bit different. I killed a big buck several years ago. I, well, it's the one behind me. He, uh, I set up in a gum tree right there on the scrape that he was using in daylight hours. And I tried to kill him on it, and tried to kill him on it, tried to kill him on it. And I finally realized that the son of a gun was smelling me because I had daylight pictures of the deer working the scrape. I knew I had him, but I couldn't hunt him there on the scrape. So I moved 80 yards down the hill and got on the brake line. And he came off the ridge where he was actually coming from every time. 
and worked the scrape. That morning I killed him was November 11th. He came down there and worked the scrape, and then he had a choice to make then. He could either go around the bench where there was a bunch of laydowns and blowdown and a bunch of junk, or he could drop down and get on the contour and follow it around to probably 100 yards around the hill or less where there was a little backbone point that went off down to the creek. So he had a choice to make right there, and luckily he chose to come down the hill and get on the break where I was, and I shot him at 23 yards right there. But I'd made a mock scrape there, too. He didn't hit that scrape, but but I had to move. I had to move down the hill to kill that deer. I know dang well he was smelling me. He had to be. I mean, it was like I could, if I was there, I couldn't see him. But I, anytime I wasn't there, he would come hit that scrape. It was like at 7, 7.30 in the morning he hit that thing. But when I moved down the hill, I actually saw a 10-point down there, another deer that had a doe pin down. That's kind of what got me to drift down there but me moving down that hill and getting on that break is what got that deer killed <clears throat> but yeah they will they'll uh they like to travel those contour lines they like to stay pretty tight to them and i don't know if it's a elevation change thing for them where they can drop off if something spooks them or just what it is i mean but they like to travel either sometimes down on them a little ways where are just out of sight or right on the edge of them. Now, and you'll find a lot of sign places like that too. A lot of people won't walk down there to actually look for sign, but if you actually get down there and look, there's actually quite a bit of sign in those places. Quite a bit of, you see some rubs and stuff. So, Drew, I, I want you to go over some terminology for me. Now, this is a video podcast. Of course, guys, you can go on YouTube and you can watch this whole video podcast in addition to listen to it. But, Drew, when you're talking about they like to travel those contour breaks and those contour lines, for guys that don't understand topo maps or they're having trouble visualizing what you're saying, can you kind of, you know, explain to us in a way that the listeners can visualize what you mean by traveling these contour breaks in these mountains? So a lot of times there'll be a really steep, contour line there'll be a there'll be a bluff there'll be a steeper part of the mountain there'll be a, like a long hillside a lot of times those are about mid slope and they'll have a more of a narrow bench on them and then sometimes you get up closer to the ridge top and there'll be a wider bench which is hard to cover and there's more mast on it sometimes if it hits in there and the narrower benches down below i call them shelves is what i call them and a lot of times those shells will lead into like a little backbone point that runs off down to the creek. And sometimes they'll follow those all the way around until they hit those little points that go down and they'll, they'll go down those. And sometimes they'll go on past them and go on, keep going around the mountain, but whatever their plans are for the day. But I've seen them do both. But I try to get where some of that intersects. I've got one place that I hunt that's on a narrow bench like that where a backbone point intersects it and i've killed no telling how many deer on that one spot it's just a it's not really a clover leaf but it's just where that backbone point comes down and intersects that narrow bench and uh, there's a cover change there too it kind of transitions from cedar to uh, hardwoods and you've just got a lot of stuff going on right there in that one spot and that spot right there is, it's kind of hard to find a spot that's good early season and late season, but that's a good early season spot and late season spot. It's paid off for me 
you know, more than once. I've tried to find other spots like it, and I found some similar to it. I've got one spot that I used to hunt that is just, I mean, it was just flat awesome. But I don't know. I think it's because of CWD. CWD's hit pretty hard up here. And I just don't see the mature deer that I used to see there. I've killed two deer. They're both over, like, right at 20 inches wide. Both of them. I killed both of them on my bow. And it's a huge flat that runs out. And it's got white oaks and mixture oaks, mostly white oaks. And there's a big cutover just adjacent to it. But the flat runs out there, and it's fairly open, but it's got a lot of understory, midstory in it. And there's two ridges that go off each side of this flat a big drain that comes up in the middle. And there's a cedar thicket and a heart and a hardwood right here. So it's got two ridges going off, a holler in the middle, and a transition in the timber right there where all that where those two ridges come up. So you're talking about a heck of a spot. I can hang a trail camera there and leave it out there year round and I can get before C W D hit, I would get tons of buck pictures there. All wildlife, hogs, deer, bear, everything. But there was a cedar tree right there at the head of that drain. And uh, there was bucks on there when I would hunt early. But I got to making a mock scrape underneath that cedar tree. And you would not believe it how many buck pictures I had on that and how many bucks I've killed on it. I mean, I've killed, like I said, I killed two really wide deer on it. But since CWD hit, it's like the older age structure in there has just went way down. I've not been able to... I've not been able to be successful in there because of that. I think that's what I'm gonna. That's what I'm gonna blame it on. But it's just too good a spot. I've had so many. There's no telling how many big bucks I've had in there on that spot before CWD really got bad up here. But that's a good example. Yeah. So Drew, one, of the- one other thing with the contour line breaks, I just want to kind of uh, reiterate on. When you mean contour breaks, you had the the really tight lines, the really steep stuff you can see it on topo map. And it kind of comes along that ridge, and then at some point it starts widening out. Those topo lines spread out just a little bit, where it's getting less steep. If someone understands how to read a topo map, and they're they're traveling the contour line, that break where that steep stuff is meeting the more gradual stuff right at that edge is where they're is where they're walking at. Correct? Yeah, it's just like fishing. You know, you, you can find you always find a fish on a channel swing bank. That's where you've got a steep contour meeting a wider, you know, more open between contour lines, more distance between contour lines. Anytime you got that drastic change, that's definitely a spot to look at. But some of these places will run. I mean, they'll run a long ways around these mountains, and some of them will run just a short distance, and then they'll kind of transition into more flat areas. You can kind of identify some of that on topo maps, but... A lot of the ones that run a long distance on the mountain are the better, you know, pre-rut rut spots because those deer travel that, especially if there's, I mean, the does will be all in there in that pre-rut rut stage, and then the bucks, they'll they'll travel that band if those acorns hit. Sometimes they're everywhere. Like I said, that's the worst time to try to early season hunt is when there's acorns everywhere. If there's spotty, if it's spotty, if the mass crop's spotty, then that's the time to early season hunt. That's the best time. I'm not saying you can't do it when there's a lot of them, but that pre-rut rut time is the best whenever it is like, I mean, there's acres, it's just raining acres everywhere. But 
early season, it seems like it's a little bit better when you can kind of have them a little bit more dispersed and a little bit more patchy, and you can kind of drill down on certain areas, especially if they hit on that mid-slope. And sometimes they'll hit just on the ridge tops. I've seen it when that's happened. <clears throat> but most of the time, that mid-slope area, it, it's pretty consistent. I don't know if it has to do with the frost or what it has to do with, but it seems like last year was the best mass crop we ever had. I mean, they were everywhere. It was early season was tough for me, but then when, you know, the rut kicked on, it was like it, it became a little bit easier. I started, these bucks started following the does, and I could just go hunt where anywhere where there's a transition or a good funnel or anything like that where there was acorns, I could hunt that and get on deer. But early season, it was, eh, it was, quite a bit tougher when they were just you know acorns basically on every every other tree you come to in the woods drew one other thing uh, i mean i've got a lot of other questions i know andrew has a lot of questions i know i've been taking up a ton of time and andrew's got questions he wants to jump in here on um when, when we're talking like this early season time period you know we're talking late september going into october you know mid-october time period you know most states in southeast by mid-october pretty much every state's open for bow season and you're talking about these band, this band of timber, this this band of mass crops that you find on these ridge lines and everything. Is there anything specific about one spot over another that will lead you? You know, taking trail cameras out of the equation, like you know, say if you didn't have the application of trail cameras, um, is there any one thing that you like to look for more so than another? Especially if you have that band of, of mass crops dropping. You know, is it like? I want to try to be close to that contour break, close to a bench, close to a drainage system coming down with a backbone. Is it just adding more compounding features? Or is there any one thing over another that you'd want to kind of lean towards that's going to help produce potentially an area a mature buck's going to use? Yeah, you can look for all that stuff and look for it on the map and go in there, but it's it's all about the sign. Look for that sign. Look for that fresh sign in there. That'll, that'll, that'll tell the tale right there. Especially early, like I said, that early, the sign you find in early season is way more significant than the, the sign that you find in pre-rut and rut. Way more significant. I mean, I've heard guys talk about those feed trees, they'll be signed close to it. That is true. There will be sign, you know, close to where they're feeding like that. And a lot of times it's a sometimes the mature deer they will have a core area it'll be a 15 20 acre spot and that's that's kind of when i've had the best luck in early season when you can find that area i mean you don't like i said you have no idea you can't you cannot pinpoint where these things are bedding you just cannot do it they can i mean anywhere they want to bed they can bed but you can you know in your mind think close to where they're bedding if it's a rough hillside or whatever, if it's a place where the vegetation is a little bit thicker versus where it's open, he might be just moving in there a little ways in bedding where he feels more comfortable. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's the sign is really key and fresh sign early. And the scrapes, I mean, like I said, I, that's kind of a secret I've had for years. I've used it. I've used that. I've used buck scent. I've used doe scent. Because you get out here in the mountains, it's like, it's kind of overwhelming when you step out here in the woods. 
on a year where you've got mass crop deluxe or if it's even a year where it's hit in a band like that on a certain elevation on the mountain, it's still kind of overwhelming because you've got tons of country to deal with. But you've got to try to figure out how to put the odds in your favor every way that you can. And that scrape deal has been, it's been pretty significant for me, even the mock scrape thing and using scent. But get in there and find that sign either right where he's at or somewhere close to the perimeter kind of where he's staying and start working from there. Just start, but, and being stealthy too. I mean, you have to be, you got to be really slick getting in and out of there. I mean, scent control, whole nine yards. It's not quite as bad the early season as it is later. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because of the foliage or what, but you can get away with a lot more in early season than you can in late October and November. But get in there and get as close to that hot sign as you can get to it. And if there's a scrape there, open it up and put scent in it. If there, like I said, I've made scrapes, but there's not scrapes. If there's food in there, I know there's deer using it. And I know there's buck sign in there. I know there's one that has made some sign. I'll, you've got to figure out how to get that deer close to you. Amongst tons of trees that are dropping. And that's how I've done it before. And it has worked. I've used, like I said, buck and doe scent early. <clears throat> but if you found fresh enough signs, sometimes you might not even need to. You might just need to get in there like I did that one year and just, I mean, there's 11 scrapes or that one cedar tree. And I was hunting within 50 yards of that one cedar tree. There was red oak dropping, black oak, and white oak. And I killed that Pope and Young 10 point. So it's, and cameras too, use the cameras, you know, on the sign. If you make a scrape, put that camera on it, put that scent in it, see what happens. See if he daylights on it. That's another thing too, daylighting. I try to get, if I can get a daylight picture, that says it all right there. If it's 12 o'clock at night, I'm probably not in the right spot. If I get one that's close to, you know, daylight or dark, then I'm, I know I'm in the game. They won't move a long distance like that in early season usually, but I like to have a daytime picture of that deer. I know I'm pretty close to where he's living, and they they do feel more comfortable early season like that, getting that moving if you get close to where they're living. And as far as slipping in, slipping out, spooking those deer, I don't – yeah, you might spook a few, but if they're not there, they don't know you're in there. I mean, you got – all kinds of crickets, you got bugs, you got all kinds of noises going on. Like we're early season, you got all this going on. You can slip in and out stealthy. And then you get later in season, it's just like dead still. And you can hear yourself walking for, I mean, deer can hear you walking for miles. So you got a big advantage on them there in early season. If you can sneak in, sneak out of there, get on the fresh sun and hunt it early and try to get in there and kill him. Drew, I want to I want to ask about being efficient with your scouting and how you go about checking these spots. So, and, and also by the way, like the scrape thing, we actually have we get so many questions about scrapes. We actually have a question uh, on this coming Thursday's breakdown episode about scrapes that we talk about. But uh, we we got to get you on to do like a scrape deep dive into that because I know we're going to get a ton of questions on it. 
But one thing I wanted to ask about when it comes to just proficiency with scouting and, and kind of making the most of your boots on the ground, when we're talking about like the contour edges, like the bluff lines, the compounding features and stuff, are you looking at a map and identifying those areas and then basically just walking straight to those and walking it? Like the way I'm picturing it in my head is like you have a you have like a tr- some kind of terrain transition where those con- when that contour break is and do you just like hit that line and just walk that line and see what you find and if you don't find any good sign then you're on to the next thing or what's that look like for you yeah that's a good approach to it you can get on a good contour break and just start walking it out and just check see what you find walk it until you find something that you like you find something that turns you on put a camera on it <clears throat> because they won't a lot of times I mean it'll be like I said, you don't know exactly where they're bedding. You may have to travel a good distance before you find that sign you're looking for. So, yeah, get on that good contour break and just start walking it. But then, like I said, early season, it's it all comes back to the food early season. You have to be where that food is. you got to be where that – and I've heard people talk about preferred food. It is white oak. I mean, white oak's the number one. And then post oak, uh, I have seen deer just hammer post oak, but they don't usually drop until later. It's usually later when they drop, unless you get like a big storm event or something like that, that or squirrels that just hammer them and, you know, cut them, cut the caps off and knock them down. They land on the ground and they don't pick them up. But, uh, <clears throat> And black oak, too. Black oak's another one up here. That's uh, If you get a good black oak here, they will be on the black oaks. And then you got southern red oak. And when they hit, a lot of times they're down lower. It's like a, you know what they look like. They've got a big, the leaf looks like a turkey track. Big middle runner on them, and they got a streaked acorn. The acorn's got streaks on them. I have seen those things drop, and... December before, like a snow on the ground, and deer hammering them, and the acorns be on top of the snow. So that's that's the flip side of it, right there. You can look into late season and hunt those as well as hunting other stuff early season, like the white oaks. But I, I've seen I've killed deer even on places where those southern red oak are dropping way late on top of the snow. <clears throat> and go in there and that'd just be deer sign absolutely everywhere but as far as finding a feed tree in that man i don't know it's i guess if one's hitting you could but most of the time it's like three or four different trees or maybe eight or ten or maybe like a bench that's got them when you actually find that <clears throat> but the narrow benches too that as a bow hunter that allows you to get within bow range of them if you're hunting a big wide bench on top next to a ridge you're probably not going to shot that deer because early season the foliage is so thick you can't really shoot that far so if you're on those narrow benches you can actually shoot i mean you can shoot most of the trees that you're hunting if you get on a big wide bench you can't shoot that with the benches real quick i had to cut andrew off real quick because i don't want to ask a question when you're setting up on like say you set up on a bench and, and we keep saying a feed tree, but you're not looking for a specific tree. You're looking for just trees that are dropping in a general area, you know, close vicinity to you. 
If you're setting up on a bench or a contour line, do you always want to set up on like the downhill side, like like right where that bench breaks off, and you want to set up there, or do you want to sit up towards the main mountain side as it goes up the hill? I usually set up right on the break where I can shoot down and shoot the bench. That's usually what I do. If it's a shelf, usually it's kind of like a no-brainer because it's so narrow. You don't really, I mean, you're, you can set up either place, but why would you set up on the foot of the hill when you can set up on the break of the hill and still see down the hill and still shoot the foot of the hill? Does that make sense? Yep. So if you set up, and the wind too, if the wind, like in the evenings, the thermals are pulling down, they're not going to smell you. I mean, they come around that break, it's, they may, they may be dropping, but it's it's pretty much going to go over them. And if you got a little bit of a breeze, it's sure going to go over the top of their head. If they're coming, you know, mid-slope or if they're coming around that edge, they think they're coming downwind, but they're not going to catch you. They're going to be right there on that break, working it, easing around. But, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's the perfect spot to set up on them. As far as playing the wind, I've killed I've killed a lot of deer like that on those spots. A lot of deer. All right, so of... I'm gonna cut Andrew off again, Drew, and I'll probably just cut you off too. So I'm sorry, but uh, on a contour break, similar situation. Do you want to set up right on that break? Do you just sit just above the break, just below the break? What's your take on setting up on a contour break? I've got a stand set up right now. I hadn't went. I need to go hang a camera on it. I probably will next week maybe this week, but I'm set up right on the edge of it. I mean, I'm right on the break where I can shoot down and I can shoot the flat part. If they're traveling just on the edge of it up high, I can shoot that and I can shoot downhill. A lot of the does will come, they might be out of range of you. They'll come up above you sometimes, but it seems to me like the bucks, and according to the sign that I've seen, a lot of the sign, a lot of the buck rubs I've seen, they want to get down below that hill a little bit, and even on a ridge, they they want to get on the side of that ridge when they're traveling. They want to get down off of it a little ways. So that's kind of how I set up on them, where I can shoot down and the first part, the first where I can see out just on the top of the break. <clears throat> It's worked for me in the past, and like I said, I've got a spot that I'm fixing to go check here in the next couple of days, maybe maybe this week or next. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go see if there's any sign in there. There was last year. There was a two bucks working it really good, and they were two-year-olds, three-year-olds. They should be three, four-year-olds this year. I know a couple of them were. I would just want to – I need to get a camera in there. Like I said, I have this shoulder operation on done so i can't really i'd be able to get out like i want to but i'm fixing to i think i got three cameras out right now but i'm fixing to, i'm fixing to get up in the eight to ten camera category here in the next week drew i want to i want to also ask about another thing that you've mentioned several times in the podcast and that's years especially in early season where there's like a really big mass crop where it just ends up making it harder basically to kind of narrow things down in early season in years that you have that where it just kind of seems like there's mast all over the place and it's really like a boom year what are you trying to do to narrow things down i mean are you still just kind of going and spot checking the same kind of stuff and looking for the same kind of sign or are you adjusting to those conditions in any way yeah well the first thing is go to the north slopes if it's hot 
remember that first. Check that first. And then beyond that, I mean, as far as the the thickets go, or if they're bedding in thicker cover, if you've got an isolated tree out there, that's a different species. Or if it's like shelter woods. I killed a big buck years ago. I can't really say it's early season. It was November when I killed him, but shelter woods, they're like, if they're over 40 acres, they have to have some kind of a buffer strip in them. I've heard them talk about SMZs. All timber units that are cut have to have SMZs in them. And that'll be pretty much open timber all the way up through that drainage that's got water running down it. Well, if they're over 40 acres, then the shelter woods that are cut on the forest, they have to have a buffer strip in them in the middle. So that's open ground. You can have the edges of those. And uh, I killed a big buck years ago. Or just talking about clear cuts and stuff. I I went there and killed that thing. It was I sat on a log deck. It was a hundred and forty something inch buck, big kickers off the G twos. Thing was old as all get out. He used to be a ten point on the frame. He dropped back to an eight and had kickers off the G twos. I mean he's probably seven plus years old. But I couldn't get daylight that deer at all. That thing was in a cutover, big time cutover. But he's in one of those shelter woods, and a shelter woods cut down to probably 40 basal area that's you know 30 40 trees per acre and this thing had grown up for a few years so it had some undergrowth in it and i set up in this log pile i may be getting off subject talking about this but i gotta tell this story i hunted that deer so long i didn't know if i was even gonna kill him i mean i thought he was gonna die of old age but i finally one evening i caught him coming out of that thicket and it was right at dark when he came out. There was all kinds of mast, I mean, down on the benches. There was a big ridge that ran off. That's where the cutover was. It was on that ridge. But the benches below that were just loaded with acorns. And he would come out there at night and feed on them with the does. I, I heard him come out there grunting one evening. I could just barely skylight this deer coming out. But I caught him coming out that one evening. I knew it was him. I heard him grunting. So I went in there the next couple of days and I hunted and there was an old log deck that the, that the loggers had left in there. And it was like eight foot tall. So I went and sat on top of that log deck and waited and watched that thicket. And sure enough, early in the morning, about 830, those doves started getting up and moving around in that thing, moving around, moving around. Well, they were feeding on acorns in that thing. These deer can feed all day long in this thing. It's been thin, so those trees in that unit, they're getting more nutrients. They've got acorns all over them. They don't have to get out of that hole. It's like a 30-acre unit. It didn't have a strip in the middle of it. It was like 30 acres. But they could feed all day long in that thing, and there was a branch that ran up the middle that had water in it. So they had everything they needed to stay in there all day and then come out at night. So I got in there on that log deck where I could see in that thing. And those deer were moving around in there early, early in the morning, like 8.30, 8 o'clock, 8.30. I could hear all of those getting up out of their beds, moving around, feeding. They were going to different feed trees in there, eating. And I was scanning back and forth all, I mean, like for 45 minutes an hour, back and forth, looking. That big buck was bedded. 40 yards of me the whole time. Finally, he, he just got up out of his bed and was standing there after about 100 times scanning back and forth. And I just reached over there and got my gun and swung over and shot him. But he would never come out of that thing in the daytime because there was feed trees all in that unit. 
I mean, it was probably cut, I'm going to say four years is what the, I'm going to say what the age of it was, four or five years. But those trees, I mean, there wasn't any trees around them. They thinned all around them and they were gathering up all the nutrients, dropping acorns in there. It was the perfect scenario for that deer to live in there. I had to actually get in there to kill him. I don't think I would have ever killed him on the outside of that thing. We had a similar situation a couple of years back in Georgia uh, where it was it was a shelter wood cut like that where they had, they'd come in and they had left a couple of those big white oaks and there was no competition for them. And they were dropping in that thick cover. And, like, the deer, it was cool because, I mean, they were, it was loaded with deer. And so you were getting does and younger bucks kind of coming out of that. And those are the ones we were getting cracks at. But one day our buddy Michael went up and climbed right in the middle of that sucker, and he saw two just slammer bucks in there. But they're, but they're like, never coming out of the thing. And, and like, I think kind of, like kind of one of the things I'm, I'm gathering from what you're saying here is, like, when the when the feed tree is no longer the limiting resource, you've got to look at what the other limiting resource might be. So maybe the other limiting resource is the good cover, or maybe it's water availability, or maybe it's the the cooler temperatures on the north slope. So would you say that that, that you're kind of using that process of elimination? It's like okay, the feed trees aren't scarce, but maybe water is scarce. So I'm going to go and I'm going to find a place that has feed trees and water. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that'd be a good approach to it. And then the sign, you got to go back to the sign, the fresh sign. I mean, I always look for that. As far as bucks go, scraping and the rubbing. I mean, when they get that velvet off, they're working those neck muscles. They're they're working stuff. They get territorial. That sign is way more significant early than it is. You know, closer to the rut, it becomes less significant during the rut than it does early. It's way more significant early. I've had better luck, a lot of luck. Like I said, using the even using the scent, the mock scrape. Because when you look at this area up here, it's just uh, I mean, there's so much ground. That's what everybody always asks. I mean, how do you pan them down? It's tough. It's tough to pan them down. But that's, I'm going to put every advantage I can in my favor that I can. And if that means making mock scrapes, then I'm going to do it. And two, making those mock scrapes, that that puts a fresh earth smell up. Every time I go in, I'll work it. I'll work that thing. I'll stir the dirt up. I mean, that puts a scent in there that those deer catch on to. That's just one more advantage that you can add, you know, to getting that bucket bow range. And talking about that buck I killed in that shelter wood, I mean, how do you bow hunt that? I don't know. I don't know how you would, unless you like and call to that deer or something. And they don't respond to calling here like they do in the Midwest. So it's like there's certain times you just got to break the gun out, and kill the things. But and that's what I did there. But I thought I want to kill that deer with a bow. I want to kill every one of them with a bow that I can. But I just didn't see an option. That's why I took my gun in there and killed him. Because I was like, man, I'm, I've got an opportunity here. I know where he came out of that thicket. I know he's in there. I need to get as close to that as I can. He's using those feed trees inside that unit. Kill him with a gun. Sometimes you just got to gotta smell the powder burn. <laughs> hey, Drew, I, I've got to bring this up. I should have brought this up earlier in the podcast, but... 
you know, we're over an hour and 20 into this episode and, you know, anyone that still listens to this episode, you know, they're, they're very fascinated with the conversation. They're also diehard listeners to the show. And I've seen this come up in conversation. Uh, not, not, I'm not saying with you, but with other guys I've seen on social media, when we post some of these feature episodes where some guys are like, man, feed, you know, hunting feed trees or just mass crops in general, um, are great for finding and killing deer, but they're not necessarily great for killing mature bucks. What is your take on that? Because you've clearly killed quite a few mature bucks in and around mass crops like that. What would you be your What would be your take on on talking to somebody who doesn't think you can kill mature bucks at least consistently on mass crops? I go back to the sign again. I mean, if it's just feed sign, yeah, maybe does, but. If you got buck sign in there, obviously there's a buck in there. And if it's good buck sign, I look for that twisted stuff. And if you're hunting, like, if you're looking for that, it's really hard to find that deer's core area here, like I said, because you don't know where they're bedding. Early season, they can bed anywhere they want to. But if you find that twisted, those bushes that are twisted, and it's like a buck is really aggressive and he's making that territorial sign, that's where I shot those I had that day where I shot those three big bucks, which I wish I'd have killed one, but I'd have had a better story to tell. But that's what I found in there. And I found it multiple years. And I actually had sheds off of those deer. I had sheds off of the deer that, uh, the 14 point. And I got to looking and I had sheds off of the deer that I, that was horning that tree 18 yards, the 12 point that was 18 inches wide. That was right below me. I had sheds off both of those deer, but I never had pictures of the, of the 12 point, but that sign was in there, that twisted sign. It was right there. I'll explain the area to you. It was a, it was a ridge that came off that intersected a bluff line that played out. There was a backbone point that ran off of the, right there by the bluff line. It had a small saddle down there in the lower part of it. I didn't hunt that. I was hunting on the contour break up above that where the pine stand basically transitioned into hardwoods. And the hardwoods even had a transition. There was a, hard, there was a transition between white oak and post oak right there. And right there is where I was sitting, right there on that. And there was a few cedar trees in there even. I mean, to top it all, I mean, there was, everything was going on right there. And I hunted right there on that brake line, right there at the head of that backbone ridge where that pine stand came off and transitioned into the hardwoods above that bluff line. And that's where it all happened, right there in that spot. Excellent spot. I saw bear there too. I guess you could say there was a feed tree there. I videoed a bear come out there. He laid down under a white oak and ate for 30 minutes. I videoed him picking up acorns with his paws and eating them. <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean... Technically, there was probably a feed tree there, but the old bear was using it more than the deer, where the deer were using that contour break. That 14 point, he was using it. The the 12, I think he came around it. It was raining when I shot him, when I shot at him. So I'm not for sure exactly where he came from, but he came, he was on that contour, like right below me, hoarding that tree when I saw him. And then the, the eight point, like the 130 inch eight point that came in later, was coming up that backbone at two o'clock in the day right there but it was a uh, a major transition between a double bluff line and a 
a timber change right there, basically, for lack of a better term to describe it. I'll tell you one thing. Uh, mm-hmm. After this conversation, this podcast, I'm going to be paying way more attention to bluff lines. Oh, and, yeah. And not, or we're not bluff lines. I'm sorry, contour lines or contour uh, breaks specifically, both when we're in Georgia, but also some of the areas we're going to be hunting in Alabama and, and some other states as well. Um, and, yeah, that's just – that's fascinating. Uh, one though, Andrew, do you have? I've got. I got another question. Uh, Go for it. So, one other uh, question I've got, which we haven't really brought up, but when you're setting up in these these general areas where this mass crop's producing, the, these oaks are dropping. Um, and I know this all depends on the different situations, but it almost sounds like you're not necessarily trying to shoot to those feed trees, but you're trying to find the access route of how those bucks are going to come to those feed trees. Would you say that's accurate, or do you sometimes sit a little bit tighter to those feed trees or those gripper trees? Yeah, that's that's probably accurate. Like I said, it's if you're hunting a white oak flat, I mean, what's the chances, other than making a mock scrape, that you're going to get that buck in bow range of you? If you got if you got 40 trees on a white oak flat that, have all, that are all dropping, I mean, what's the chances that you're going to get that buck in bow range of you? Pretty slim. If you're hunting that contour break or that narrow bench that is producing mass crop, I mean, you got a lot tighter, you know, corridor in there, a lot tighter quarters to get him in bow range. To get him up there where you can see his eyes blinking. <laughs> and those deer, those big bucks seem to travel that more than, I mean, they, they get on that stuff more than, like I said, early season, they'll let their guard down. I mean, you're liable to see one coming right across the middle of a flat feeding, but I've, I've, I've done good on those shells when they hit, especially if that's the only place that has hit with mast. If you got it all over, it does make it tougher, but if that is the, if it's mid slope on the mountain and that's the, that's where the mass crop is, then that's when it's deadly. That's when it's almost a for sure thing. But it's really hard. I mean, elements and factors do have to come together before you can be really successful up here in the mountains hunting early. Said, though, that mock scrape deal is the way I deal with it. If it's if it's tough, then I go in there and I make my own sign. I try to do whatever I can to get that buck. I try to get as close to where I think he is. And where he's staying as I can, then I make that sign. Or if, he, if he's not made it, then I make it. I'll put sin in it, whatever I got to do to try to get that deer in bow range. <clears throat> Drew, I know we got a couple minutes left before we need to wrap up, but um, I, one thing I, I kind of want to get to a point that when we are wrapping up here of kind of highlighting everything we've talked about uh, and kind of like a final thought to kind of you know finish off the episode. But before we do – if you were to kind of describe to the listeners what gets you so excited about hunting mature whitetails in the early season in the mountains that you deal with in Arkansas? The biggest thing is it's you've got an advantage over them that you don't have later in the season. I mean, like I said, you can sneak in and out with all the bugs making all the noise. You got stuff making noise in the woods. You got foliage on. The scent control thing is not as big a deal 
it seems like you can get by with more of that in early season. There's an opportunity there if you can find the right place and the right scenario to get on that deer. Finding that's pretty hard. I mean, you got to put in the the time and you got to put the boots on the ground to find that. But if you can find it, your chances are really, really high of killing a mature deer early season. Probably higher than even in the rut. Unless there's a widespread mass, mass crop like I was talking, which in the previous podcast that we did you know, bearing down on spots and hunting funnels. But I love doing that. That's probably my favorite. But early season, you, you don't want to let it pass you by. Like I said, those bucks I shot on that WMA over there that time, that was that was unbelievable. I hunted all day over there, and I shot at two upper 140-class deer and one 130-class deer in one day in early season, all on a weather change. It was all on a weather change. Awesome. And hunting, like I described to you, that certain spot. I scouted that spot. I found that spot. It had the acorns. It had the mast. I mean, I knew the deer were there. I had pictures of the 14 point. I knew he was there. I had sheds. I found two sheds off the deer. I found sheds off the other deer. I was in. I was on them. And I just went in there at the right time. And, you know, we talk about the moon. The moon definitely plays. I'm all about the moon. I follow the moon. I follow the lunar tables. But as far as that went, it didn't matter. It, the moon had no, just that weather change is all it took to get those deer on their feet. That rain and that fog got those deer on their feet that third day of bow season. <clears throat> so look for the weather changes and look for that fresh sign and be stealthy and Get in there, see what you can do. Try to kill that. Try to get him while it's early. If you don't, then hunt the next phase. Absolutely. Drew, I'll say, I think we're going to wrap up with that point because uh, you kind of highlighted it. I wanted to kind of do like a summary of the whole conversation, and really you just did that, which I thought was really good. So uh, listeners out there and also viewers that are watching this on, on YouTube right now, if you want to kind of see some of these hunts that Drew's talking about, you actually can go follow along with him on YouTube. It's Drew Atkinson Outdoors. Uh, we'll link that as well in the show notes yep. so you can go check that out. He's got some great hunts in public land deer, um, just some awesome hunts, especially if you love bow hunting. I mean, he's a great guy to follow along with that. Drew, we're going to have to get you back on, dude, in literally a couple weeks, I think, uh, to talk about uh, your thought process on scrapes, especially in that pre-rut time period, kind of getting out of the early season to that pre-rut and how potentially uh, in your take, uh, you know, lunar phase position, all that kind of stuff, maybe makes a factor for it as well and kind of timing that during different points of the season. But, Drew, I just want to say I appreciate you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been another great conversation and very excited to hopefully have you back on here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Awesome, guys. Well, listen, guys, if you enjoyed this episode, I want you to make sure you go leave us a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts and you also can do it on Spotify. Uh, if you've been watching the YouTube video, give us a like on the YouTube. Make sure you're subscribed to the YouTube channel. And, guys, we'll catch you back here on the next episode from the Southern Outdoorsman. And make sure y'all stay Southern. Hey, everybody. This is Kyle V, host of the Ozark Podcast a show where we sit down with outdoorsmen of the Ozark Mountains region to talk all things hunting and fishing. Just like the outdoorsmen who live here, we follow the seasons and interview regional experts on everything from bear hunting, 
fishing for smallmouth and trout, and discussing big questions like what happened to all the quail in the southeast. If you're enjoying this show, then I know you'll enjoy the Ozark Podcast. You can listen to the show on all podcasting platforms and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.